This is a People First Radio podcast. Journalist Carlin Zwarnstein has been looking into a backlash against harm reduction measures. The Toronto-based writer joined me to share some of her findings, as well as a bit of her own story as a pain patient and user of prescribed opiates. My name is Carlin Zwarnstein. I'm a Toronto-based uh, writer and journalist. And I write about all sorts of things, but in particular, I guess, for today, I wrote a book or two books about opioid painkillers and pain and a range of social and emotional and scientific and political issues relating to those two themes. And you've also written recently that ideology and money are driving a campaign against measures that could save lives. Could you tell me more about that? Other than books, the other thing that I've done for a very long time is freelance journalism. And there's an American online magazine devoted to harm reduction and drug policy. Uh, it's called Filter. And I've written articles on all many aspects of, of drug policy and substance use there. This most recent thing about the right-wing backlash to harm reduction in Canada really goes back to... a. You know, I studied political science in university and the looking at power and who who holds it and in whose interest different policies are, are made, regardless of what the rhetoric says. Um, it's sort of been one of the things that underpins all of the journalism I've done on almost any issue. So this is really kind of right in the the area that I that I like and that I that I do a lot. And we hear because we hear a lot about harm reduction, um, often very negatively. And I thought it was worth taking a look at at what underpins some of what we're hearing and to what extent it's based on reality and to what extent it's advancing particular political interests. So to maybe break it down, first of all, when we talk about harm reduction or a campaign against harm reduction, what are the harm reduction measures that there is a campaign against? Yeah, I guess that's a big problem. Um, that harm reduction is a philosophy and a way of approaching policy. Um, specifically relating to substance use, but it can be in relation to, for example, driving. A harm reduction initiative would be looking at driving, saying it's an intrinsically dangerous activity for the person driving, for passengers, and for people on the street, other people in cars, for, for a whole range of people, it's a very dangerous activity. So we're, we, we want to continue doing that activity. We see it as having benefits in society and, and something we want to do. So we're going to reduce the harm in it by requiring seatbelts, by requiring certain safety standards, Things that, that limit our complete freedom, uh, individual freedom, in order to put in some protections and reduce the intrinsic harm of the activity. So that's just one initiative. And you could imagine a whole range of things that could apply to cars that are that would be harm reduction initiatives. Some of them could be good ideas. Some of them could be bad ideas. Right? The idea, the philosophy behind it is that you're trying to reduce the intrinsic harm of the of the activity. The same applies to substance use. So when we talk about harm reduction, we're talking about a whole a slate of things that have to be, in order for them to be successful, it depends very, very much on the context, whether the, the initiative you, that you're talking about is well adopted, whether it's uh, a good initiative, whether it's useful, whether it's relevant into the context, whether it's good, but maybe has unintended side effects, whether it's adequate to the need and many other issues. So you can't, so when we hear harm reduction isn't working or harm reduction is bad, there's that is, or harm reduction is good. There's 
an immediate need to think, okay, what exactly is the person who's saying that talking about in this case? And we hear harm reduction used as a, I mean, mostly in the negative sense, it's bad, but also advocates of harm reduction may be inadequately specific about, okay, what are they talking about? And is in this very particular context, is it going to reduce the harms associated with an activity? Whose harms are they reducing? Harms to other people, harms to the sub person who's using the substance. It is a, a term that reflects a way of approaching things and absolutely needs to be interrogated further before you can really say anything useful about it. And to that end, when you talk about a campaign against the idea of harm reduction, is that on the the kind of level you're talking about there, or are there specific measures that are being campaigned against? So yeah, there, I mean, there are specific, I think what, I mean, what I describe in the article, we can talk about in more, more details, but there has been a sort of an opportunistic take by um, relatively organized right wing in Canada to oppose harm reduction in whatever way is, is useful. So in particular, safe supply programs, which are often poorly understood, well, always poorly understood, and often um, many different initiatives in many different places are, are lumped together in a, in a not useful way. But the idea, because it's something that you can say, oh, safe supply, we're giving people free drugs. Um, that one is a particular one that gets many people upset. And the the Conservative Party of Canada and further right, uh, like the far right wing in Canada are very interested in getting people upset because that is what drives votes and it drives people to vote for policies that are maybe not in their interests in order to ensure a, a law and order agenda that they believe will be in their interests. And getting people upset about very, at the moment, extremely limited, very small scope programs of safe supply is a particular thing. But what we've seen also, like, once you start packaging things under the idea of this, this harm reduction is bad, you can connect ideas in people's minds that, oh, we're giving away free heroin. And you can combine that with, oh, we're giving away naloxone, this scary thing that we inject to save people's lives. But we're not going to call it that. We're going to say it's this thing that allows people to just keep using drugs and therefore scaring us. So there's, there's a whole a whole series of reasons which you, we've seen that in uh, reproductive justice movements in, in the U.S. that they, they can go from one, it can go from upsetness about one thing to upsetness about a whole bunch of things. And so it's, this, it's a similar focus in, with uh, substance use in Canada. But I would say safe supply is kind of the the area that it has recently um, been focused around, and particularly in Vancouver. You're listening to People First Radio. I'm speaking with Toronto-based journalist Carlin Zwarnstein. We're talking about work she's been doing, looking into a backlash against harm reduction measures. And so diving into more specifically, like what the safe supply that exists in Vancouver is, you mentioned, you know, maybe this this bogeyman that's being pointed to of giving away free drugs. But what do those programs, what do people need to know about what, what those programs actually look like and how they're being implemented? So first of all, we're, we're focusing specifically about opioids. On opioids, there's, there are there's a certain amount of this that, that exists with other drugs, but I think because of the way opioids work, it's important to be very specific that that's what we're talking about, about heroin, about fentanyl, and, and about other drugs that in the current system that we have of global prohibition, there's a huge incentive towards making drugs more compact and easy to smuggle, 
which means finding more and more potent drugs, which is why we've had a we've had a situation that's gone over the years, over 100 years from opium to morphine to heroin and now to fentanyl and carfentanyl and, and also to padding the drugs with all sorts of other substances. And so it's you, anyone who is dependent on the illicit opioid drug supply or dependent on the illicit drug supply at all and might encounter opioids is at risk of uh, taking something that they don't, where they don't know what's in it or they don't know the potency of what's in it. And that makes makes it very hard for people to, it, it results in overdose deaths at a level that would never have occurred, you know, 20, 30 years ago. It's simply, it's sort of an unimaginable level now. Now, the reason that people who are dependent on opioids keep getting into this situation is that that is the way opioids work. When you take them regularly for pain management and legally prescribed or for, for their euphoric effects or for any other effects, they create dependence. And basically your body is no longer producing Endorphins are your, basically your natural opioids. They're, they're substances that are produced in the human brain. When you, you produce less of that or have less of that available when you're dependent on opioids. So many, many functions in the body rely on, on your endorphin system. And so you're essentially unable to function. So your choices are not being dependent. And that's a whole other complicated issue with you once you have dependency. And um, having access to the drug, because while a person who is dependent on opioids can work, can maintain family relationships, can live an essentially normal life while having a maintenance dose of, of the drug that they take, which means taking it every day, possibly several times a day. Without it, you're sick. And often the symptoms that we attribute to intoxication are actually due to detoxification, to not being on the, on the drug. So essentially it's toxic for to someone who's dependent on it. It's toxic to not be on that, on that medication. And so the harm reduction process involved in safe supply is saying that we have an illicit supply that is unbelievably dangerous. People can die from it, whether they're dependent or not, whether they have relationship and family problems and whether they're in deep poverty, whether they're living on the street, whether they're living a good life, a bad life, anything, it doesn't matter. Whether they're seeking opioids or seeking cocaine, they can die from it because of the unpredictability of the, and dangerousness of the supply. So we say, okay, this is the situation that exists right now. That situation may not change until we have less inequality and uh, access to housing is improved, until many things are improved, and until we no longer have a system of prohibition that incentivizes this very, very dangerous drug supply. So given that that is the situation and it is killing people right now and depriving people of oxygen in their brains right now and destroying families and communities right now, a sensible harm reduction policy right now in this context would be to provide a supply that is pharmaceutically pure, just like someone who uses opioids for pain management would go to their doctor and receive a prescription that they can take, ideally in the privacy of their own home or in a safe environment. The like a safe and calm environment, the in, in the same way, and they would know exactly what is in it and they'd be able to choose to, to take the dose that they need. Um, we will provide that to people. It is considered, it will be a medication and it would be covered under, under any other, whatever other terms we provide medications under. And that will prevent people, it'll allow people to continue to, to reduce the health risks that include death of taking illicit opioids and reduce them to the risks that we have involved with surgical and pharmaceutical opioids, which are really very, very limited. I mean, relative to, to many, many or most drugs, it's, it's really very, very limited risks.
So that's the, th- that's the theory underlying safe supply. Can you tell me how you became interested in this particular beat, if you will? Yeah. Um, so for like 20 years, I've written about inequality, power issues, things like police brutality and poverty and housing crisis and racism and sort of a, a whole range of social issues. I had no interest, even though it must have coincided very often, I had no interest in substance use. I just, I don't know, it wasn't, addiction isn't a thing that I know of in my family. It's not something that have affected me. And I just didn't have a particular interest in it. But I came to discover that, that there are, are big links between those issues that I covered all these years and substance use when I developed a chronic degenerative condition that causes chronic pain, a, a degenerative spine disease called ankylosing spondylitis. It's a form of our, uh, inflammatory arthritis. So it causes the vertebrae in my spine to, to be inflamed, um, gradually causes like a punch deformed deformity in the spine. And it, it, the, the main symptom is pain. So I went through all of the various treatments for pain, uh, learning mindfulness-based stress reduction and doing various forms of physio and exercise, uh, taking Tylenol, then taking um, non-steroid anti-inflammatory um, drugs, which resulted in an ulcer in my esophagus and all sorts of other, other issues. And then finally, I ran out of treatments and I came to the doctor in in agony, looking miserable, depressed. And I didn't ask for anything. I just, there was clearly some, you know, I, I needed something to be able to continue with my life as raising two young children at the, at the time. And so they, following general, like proper guidelines, the doctors prescribed me a low dose, um, a low dose opioid. And so I, as a result, I became someone who uses opioids. And as with anything else in my life, I, I become interested in everything related to it, everything around it. And so I started finding out about the history of opioids like morphine and opium and laudanum and their relationship um, in literature with literature, with arts, with creativity. I found out, started looking into the, the history of writing about them, the history of prohibition. And eventually came back to the question of of addiction and substance use, and then realized how just how much it relates to the, the things I'd always written about. This is People First Radio. I'm Joe Pugh, and I'm speaking with Carlin Zwornstein. She's a journalist and author who's written about her experiences using prescribed opioids to deal with chronic pain caused by ankylosing spondylitis. And you chronicled some of those experiences in in a couple of books, and one most recently, your own experience. And reading through that, the process you described there, it's almost like the the opioids really gave you your life back compared to the treatments you had had been on before. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. It's the only thing I've taken that hasn't caused me harm. Um, it allows me not to not to get back everything but to get back a lot i wish i'd started earlier i wish i'd been less cautious earlier because i wasted precious time with my kids when i i could have not been in pain the whole time there's things i don't remember from their childhood because i was in so much pain so yeah it's uh it it has been for me a life-saving treatment that doesn't mean it is for everyone um and i'm very lucky to have to be taking some the particular thing that works well with me and to be able to work with my doctor to, to ensure that it's the right thing. And so how has that process that you just described, how has that 
colored your views or influenced the way you look at, you know, the broader issues we're discussing today? Mm, well, I guess it's it's biased me to seek out the positives, like or to question the negatives that I hear, and that does not mean an entirely positive view of opioids. The reason I first looked into it was that I um, was given a medication. It's called tramadol. It doesn't say morphine on the bottle. It doesn't. So you don't, I didn't realize I, I went home and Googled it and found out that I was taking an atypical opioid. And then I quickly found articles on uh, tramadol addiction in, as a huge problem in the Middle East and Nigeria, uh, across Africa. And then sort of made the association, oh, this is an opioid. I thought, oh my God, I've been prescribed an opioid. Do they think I'm going to die? Because my only association was with morphine in, in palliative care. And I've expanded my ideas to palliative care since. But at that point, I understood palliative care to mean you're dying imminently. So uh, that was terrifying. And I'm also someone who's not particularly comfortable with, I'm not comfortable with visible intoxication. I'm not comfortable with ideas of, um, of addiction and dependence uh you know i i drink coffee now but i used to avoid caffeine because i didn't like the idea of being dependent on it so i had a lot of i i so in, in that sense i came at it from a negative bias um but i think the fact that it ultimately i don't think that anyone who knows me would be able to say that this has made my life worse and mo anyone who knew me pre-trim at all would would say it's made my life better I think it's a well-earned positive bias. So I guess uh, it leaves me interested, um, but maybe make be equally balanced on both sides, which isn't the case in most um, most conversations about this these substances. Are there any things you would say or you feel from your experience that that are really specific that are misconceptions about opioid use that you want to want to correct? I think the big one is that question of intoxication and what it means to be intoxicated. Different drugs have different effects. Um, many pain patients are very eager to, well, first of all, many pain patients, because of the dose that you're taking and because it's a maintenance dose, it's the dose that you're accustomed to, they have very little, there's little or no psychological impact, little or no impact on behavior other than being free from pain, which is a good feeling when you're in pain to no longer be in pain is is a good feeling and it could be hard to distinguish that from like to say that that's euphoria and people often resent the idea that uh, being told that they're on a an addictive and dependence inducing drug that they're on a drug that is one very anti-opioid crusader in the u.s uh, likes to call them our heroin pills and every pain patient i know is offended by this it's not heroin pills you're not taking it for fun. You're taking it to be able to live your life. The thing that I don't think is is uh, recognized is how much that's a situation that is often is common to people who are dependent on illicit opioids as well. And the fact that there's such a class issue of associated with uh, illicit drug use means that we don't you we often seeing it as middle class respectable looking and acting people in normal lives, quote, quote unquote, normalized using low dose and uh, legal painkillers versus people living on the streets, doing drugs in public. Uh, with a, there's an idea of lack of dignity, lack of self-respect that isn't, isn't warranted, that is to do with, with context and, and appearance and not to do with, with the facts. We are taking similar drugs and at maintenance doses, at the dose to which your body is accustomed, the 
amount of what you, what we think of as intoxication is is going to be pretty limited if if existing at all. And the main thing that you're getting from from the drug is function. So talking specifically about opioids then, and mm-hmm. going back to the backlash that started our conversation, do you think that maybe that boils down almost to a backlash against visible poverty more than anything else? Yeah, I do. I, I do think so. I think there's, in the process of, of writing the first book and then the second book on opium, um, and sort of going from writing about the question of, am I, am I addicted? Am I dependent? Um, what is this doing to me? Analyzing the psychological effects and, and all of that to, to ultimately having a view that dependence isn't ideal. And I am physically dependent on this medication, like any other long-term opioid user. It's not ideal, but it is definitely the best of, uh, the best situation I have available to me. So I, so in the process of that, I came to question a lot of the basic Puritanism that underlies North American society and the idea that suffering is good and uh, deprivation is is good. But then on the other thing is is returning to my, my roots as, as someone writing about poverty and class and seeing just how much the, for example, if someone is dependent on, okay, I have to take, uh, take many, many different kinds of medication to manage my spine, both the dependence the pen- dependence causing one and for example an Im- immune suppressant that i inject in my thigh every week i have an apartment i do that in privacy i close the door to my bedroom and i do it on my own however if i didn't have a home because i couldn't afford a home because of the price of rents in uh, vancouver or in toronto where i live and i lived in a shelter or if the shelter was violent um, and my possessions were constantly stolen and there really was no acceptable option there. If I'm immune suppressed and I'm stuck in a shelter with a million people during a pandemic, I might choose instead to live outside in a tent in an encampment. I might find that when I that if I am in order to to live and given the the lack of income that I have, I might be uh, begging for change. I might be on the street and I might need my dose. I don't inject the opioid I take, but so it would be a bit more discreet. But the I do have a drug that I have to inject. Um, that that is kind of a reason that you would end that someone might end up doing that in public. And so we see something. We see, oh my God, this person is in has no sense of self respect. Actually, they have quite a bit of self respect to be making the choice to keep themselves well, which is the slang expression used for um, for taking an opiate when you're dependent on it and are in withdrawal. So they get, you're getting well, but literally you're getting well, you don't avoiding flu symptoms, which are very unpleasant and very unpleasant to experience in, or to watch in public. So people are taking care of themselves as best they can. And I think that you're, we're confusing poverty and we're confusing a whole range of other, other social conditions that take a long time to deal with and certainly are not dealt with the way we're dealing with them now we're confusing that with addiction and with and with drug use. They might be associated in ways, but they're not the same thing. Carlin Zwornstein is a Toronto-based writer and journalist. People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners.